Welcome to Podcasting Stories, insights and interviews from people just like you, using podcasts to grow their business and share their message. Podcasting Stories is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Dave Spray. Welcome to the Podcasting Stories podcast. My name is David Spray, and today we're talking with Bob Kulhan, the founder and CEO of Business Improv. Bob founded the business more than two decades ago, and it was inspired by his career as an improvisation performer. Business Improv provides a high-end, up-on-your-feet opportunity to experience improv and take the lessons learned to improve leadership, team building, and innovation. Bob has a great example of a dysfunctional leadership team who his company's process transformed the team in less than a year. He's also intrigued by the ways that a podcast could serve as a storytelling platform and allow him to further his learning, creativity, and collaboration with his guests. Bob is a really interesting guy who's been able to combine his vocation with his avocation. If you've ever considered having your own podcast, This episode has a lot of great ideas on ways a podcast might be beneficial. Now, let's get to the show. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the podcast. David, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, the the pleasure is all mine. Well, let's get started. So I've never met anybody who had a former job title that had the word idiot in it. So why don't you talk to me? How does somebody end up with a job title of idiot? And then how do they get promoted to senior idiot? I just, this is a first for me. Well, I think you've been doing your research with the world of improvisation. So the the wonderful world of improvisation, or at least the community of improvisers in which I was very, very fortunate to live for the longest time in Chicago. You know, there's a lot of us who consider ourselves just sort of improv idiots and there's no when you work for free for theaters and just perform because you're intrinsically motivated to do so it's just a passion and you just you don't get paid you show up every single night to perform over and over and over again and it's the best improvisers some of them the best improvisers in the world and definitely the best improvisers in Chicago we're all doing it we just start making up job titles for ourselves I see. some of us even even created business cards that had that we just hand them out. And so instead of any of us taking ourselves too seriously, you know, it's self-deprecating and you go to a casting agent or a networking event and you hand out improv idiot, it more often than not raises an eyebrow. And so (laughs) as I, you know, from my night job of making people laugh to my day job of running my own company would find myself in business events and running out of proper business cards, I seem to always have a few of those left over in my wallet and would hand out those out. And I would say 9.9 times out of 10, that sparked an additional conversation. So it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Well, I guess that's the great thing about when you're a volunteer, you kind of get to do the work on your terms, right? You can kind of give yourself whatever title you want and kind of do things like you want. So, So talk to me how you went from being a, a quote-unquote improv idiot to being a well-regarded uh, professor at two different business schools, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. I'm an adjunct 
professor at the Duke University Fuqua School of Business and have been for about 20 years, and also an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, which is a, a rotating adjunct status, depending on if I'm teaching or not. However, I've created programs in their exec ed department, as well as a very, very popular in their NBA school called uh, The Leader's Voice. I co-created that with uh, Michael Morris, Professor Michael Morris. Oh, wow. And yeah, my my formal degree is not in theater. And my formal degree is in business. And what I always say is, appropriately enough, I got a BS in business. And um, <laughs> I like was it. actually very good in Chicago. I graduated from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Within a couple of years of that degree, I had won a Bank of America Award for Creative Marketing in Chicago. And at the same time, I was really diving into improvisation and left it all to I left business to just immerse myself in improvisation as much as possible. And I wasn't kidding when I said we were performing every night of the week. We were making up nights. There were the theater was dark on late night Saturdays. So we created midnight shows. We created late night Fridays, midnight shows, uh, Tuesday nights, Wednesday nights. You know, I was helping among many to, you know, create nights of the week and blaze the trail on improv. And in a course of about five or six years, when I left business was about as broke as you could possibly imagine. (laughs) And (laughs) I was good at business and good at improvisation. It's a struggle in the mid nineties, especially when improv was not as popular as what it is now. And I effectively proved professional improviser in Chicago in the mid-90s was a contradiction in terms. So I was scrambling <laughs> to make money. I was, I was doing everything I could never to go back into business, to be really honest with you. I was teaching a lot of improvisation at all of the great theaters in Chicago. I was coaching improvisation teams, improv groups, and I was a nanny. I hauled sheetrock. I was on top of roofs. I was doing essentially whatever it would take to get money. So I didn't have to go back into business. And I was pretty broke. I, the one investment I made was a condo directly east of Chicago. Uh, excuse me, directly east of Wrigley Field in Chicago. Oh, okay. I in Addison. Yeah. It was hard to make a, a very modest uh, mortgage. And at about the time, that I was trying to figure out how to keep my condo and still never go back into business and just stay as deep in improvisation as humanly possible. I had the opportunity to collaborate to create the first program in any business school in the entire world that focused solely on linking improvisation to business. And that was at the Duke University Fuqua School of Business. And this was 1999. And then from there, the program blew up. I mean, we just it exploded. The students loved it, started teaching for the faculty, and they loved it, started teaching in exec ed, as I mentioned, and, and that was successful. And so they created an adjunct status for me or invited me to be adjunct and, you know, cut to 22-ish later, years later, 21. It's almost 22 when I started collaborating to create the program. So I'm tiptoeing wow. on the anniversary of uh, the birth of inception of business improv the company so here we are yeah and so then the the company business improvisations or known as business improv for short you launched that at the same time that you became the that you set up the program at duke right yes as a cya essentially so okay we, because the the program exploded in that you know wonderful grassroots roots type of way organic you know if it was essentially on social media right now it would have you know caught fire in a very organic way and as we started doing more and more exec ed programs 
I thought, though I don't know what could possibly go wrong, it's a very litigious society, and it'd be better to create an LLC as a CYA, and that's exactly what we did in uh, 2001. So from there, we started picking up other clients and, you know, crafted a website and it really was what happened, especially in the the mid, early mid aughts, early mid two thousands, as all of my friends were rising to the great stages of Chicago. And I mean, the the best stages of Chicago, you know, my peers were just getting to, they were on the touring companies yet. And I was fortunate to be on uh, many great ensembles and rose to all the great stages as well. However, as you're in the grind, you still need a day job. And Mm -hmm. so they were moving over to become like waiters and um, bartenders. And I was already a bartender. I worked at, you know, I was a bartender at Wrigley Fields for four years. And I, I thought to myself, well, gosh, if I'm going to, you know, need another job, I might as well start focusing on this opportunity that I have at Duke. And at that time as well, by 2003, I was teaching at UCLA Anderson School of Management in 2005 at Columbia Business School. So I had some great business schools that I was working with. So I thought, well, what if I just take the same exact time that I would spend on waitering job a week, which was probably close to like 30 hours and dedicate it to this company. And even though I'm not making a lot of money doing this, if all I need is really a handful of good jobs, and that will really offset the day-to-day grind of being a waiter and scrambling for tips, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you know, working at a law firm as a, a, a temp, or you know, what just thinking of like what a lot of my friends did, and I did for a little while as well. Before I was like, "What am I doing? Why don't I focus on this?" And so it was really just this uh, kind of natural coming together of the business side of my life, which I I really did love and the improv side, which was really my blood and my skin. And um, then really people just started knocking on the door. I love that story. I love businesses that grow in a grassroots way like that, where you just kind of stumble across it. I, I love that. So could you give us like some examples? I mean, I know that the you know, the official description of the business is it helps, you know, with leadership, team building, creativity type exercises or or exercise, improv exercises to improve those skills. But could you try to make it a little more tangible for me and the listeners? Like maybe give us a couple of client like success stories or examples. And if you need to anonymize the names, uh, we understand. Absolutely. So, For uh, XYZ Big Pharma, which I cannot mention by name, we essentially, and this was back in 2017. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a backstory that in 2010, we started focusing on going virtual. So way ahead of what's happened. 11 years ago, we were focusing on going virtual, taking something that a lot of people know to be experiential and moving it to the platforms of of computers it took time to really do in a a very professional way so by 2016 we're piloting with great organizations like aetna before they became cvs aetna for example and then in 2017 we worked with uh, this big pharma and it was for a division that i can't mention either by name however the division had a six-year product rollout and we were in year one and the senior leadership was just attacking each other. You know, if, if anybody knows anything about big pharma, the senior executives come with 
a high level of confidence, we'll say. And with okay. this confidence, which is earned through the experience, you know, sometimes they stop listening to each other, they undermine each other, and it might not be intentional. And sometimes yet it is. And either way, it turns toxic because people stop talking to each other. So we went in there and over the course of eight months, turned this highly dysfunctional team around and flipped the senior leaders because there, there were 11 senior leaders and a 40-person support team. And within the course of the several years that were going to follow when we were coming in there, they were going to grow to several hundred people who are going to help this new product um, come out. So the, the writing was on the wall where they were going and the product is very, very beneficial um, and they needed help. So over the course of eight months, we worked with them both on site and this is where the virtual element comes in virtually because they had offices in Singapore and Zurich and Illinois and Massachusetts and New York. And so they're scattered all around the world, uh, Sydney, Australia. And so it's a very, very diverse groups spread all over the world. There was no way to do face-to-faces every time we met with them. So we were doing virtual training with them. And over the course of a very systematic, methodical approach to what we do, and I think this is important, we don't teach just improvisation in, in business improv. We teach applicability. And the way that we link improvisation of business is through behavioral psychology and cognitive psychology and org theory and behavioral economics, decision-making models. And that's really what we focus on. And so we focus that then outward on, well, how are we influencing each other? How are we affecting each other? How do we take a toxic environment and turn it into a psychologically safe space so that regardless of rank or status, people are communicating with each other respectfully. And that's exactly what we did over eight months. So much so that other senior leaders started paying attention to this group, which was known to be quite competitive with internally with each other and dangerous toward each other as well because of that, into a team that was singularly focused and got each other's backs. And it's a great success story because we're still friends with many of those top executives as they've moved on to other biopharma organizations or stayed within that specific one. That's a, uh, that is a great story and an amazing story because, you know, anybody who's been in the business world for a while, who's experienced a culture like that, I, I I know I would certainly say, oh, that would be impossible to fix that culture unless you fired everybody and started all over. So that's pretty amazing that that that, that kind of transformation was possible. It's 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 wonderful to be honest with you. It's also it's such an honor to take on projects like that. And that's, you know, where we've always been in business improv. We don't do a whole lot of trust falls and you know, we don't we don't do a lot of things like normal improv houses would do. We intentionally put ourselves in the crosshairs at, with the high stakes. What I, I'm a baseball fan, so I like to say it's the bottom of the ninth. Bases are loaded. You are uh, five. You need you need three four, three runs to tie it, four runs to win it, and two outs. I want to be either at the plate, on the mound, or somewhere in the game making a pivotal play when eyes are on and the spotlight's on, and that's the same exact way that we handle working with organizations or people because we do one-on-one coaching as well executive coaching and it's typically when people are coming to us they're at a point that they see the need for change it goes on being it goes beyond the want it's into 
I need to do this, or I won't rise inside my organization because I don't have people skills. I'm great at tech. I'm great mm-hmm. at what I do with the numbers or whatever, you know, the analytical side of things is I excel at that. And I've been told over and over again, I don't manage people well. I don't talk to people well. I'm not collaborative. And this is this is where we really shine. That's a that is just so interesting. So was there something special about that group that allowed for that transformation or would that have happened with with just any dysfunctional group? We've proven this concept many times over. So it's not just that group that we've turned over. We know how to, and this includes virtual, we know how to take a highly dysfunctional virtual team and turn them to, into a highly functional virtual team. We know how to create virtual leaders. We know how to create virtual culture. So the technique and the methodology that we have is time-tested. It's battle-tested on top of that. That specific okay. group, though, and I would pretty much say to all, all groups like this, it's got to start with leadership. You know, There's got to be somebody at the top who says, this needs to happen, and I'm going to protect this process in as much as it is being effective. As long as it's being effective, as long as we're moving... I'll stand behind this and I will, I, we need this change to take place. On top of that, ultimately what has to happen with each individual in any toxic team to turn that team around, there has to be enough humility and vulnerability where they recognize that the behavior that they've been exhibiting is detrimental to not only the team success to their overall success, because you can't force change to happen. You can't make somebody change. You have, they have to want to do that in some capacity. And so some of what we do is create a, a hot enough light that when they are introspective, they're honest with themselves. And we don't, we can't tell them how to do that. I mean, we can guide them. However, ultimately, some people will do it. And in some cases, in some of the teams, and it wasn't with this specific biopharma that had to do what I'm about to say, yet for other teams, I've watched people get extracted from teams. And I've watched people leave teams because they don't want to change. They don't want to, they disagree with the leadership. It's, you know, there's too much damage that's already taken place. And one way or another, you know, I, though Jack Welsh is not the 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 most favorite individual in the world, he does have some few. He's got a, a bunch of great quotes, and one of them is like, "If you don't take the weeds out of the garden, they're going to strangle the plants that would otherwise bear fruit." And so sure. you have to protect those environments as well. And so, on some of the more extreme cases, there's been personnel shifts. Gotcha. Okay. So what are the characteristics then of an ideal client? Is it a dysfunctional corporate group who at the highest level, they recognize the need for change or is it more than that? It's more than that. It doesn't have to be so extreme. I mean, those are, those are, for some reason, we're focusing on sort of the deeper end of the pool types of engagements that we're in that take more time to 
to move the needle. Sometimes it's uh, morale boosting, you know, especially now I'm thinking the last 18 months or so. The team is now disjointed. They're, they're splintered a little bit. Everybody's been forced not only into uh, their home offices, stay at home offices, some of which have children melting down or dogs barking consistently, forced entrepreneurship. So it's a new way of working in those home offices. There's also you know, stress. It's a global pandemic. It's an economic crisis, political unrest, civil unrest. You know, there's a lot going on that's playing with the minds of people. And when we don't, when we're not in close proximity to each other, we don't have that elbow time. So we're missing the Mm -hmm. chemistry. We're missing the camaraderie. We're missing cohesion as a team. And then what invariably happens, trust could become an issue. And so sometimes we're brought in because they just need to pull the team back together. It's not a bad team. It's not a highly dysfunctional team. They're just having problems communicating or collaborating. They're having problems just gelling with each other, getting on the same page. Sometimes the rules of engagement are not clear enough and they need a little extended help of like, we need to really create the law of the land for everybody. And we need to do this in a collaborative way because if the leader just comes in and does it, there's a fair chance that people are going to roll their eyes at this person or say like, you've created rules before and we haven't lived by them or, you know, it's, I don't see why we're doing this. So change is, is hard across the board. And when you have change like this, everyone, most people fall into these stress behaviors. And sometimes the stress behaviors are not complementary to each other and they're not necessarily creating a toxic environment. They just need to be rectified in some way. And that's, that's also where we come in. So communication, collaboration, sometimes people are having just trouble brainstorming, ideating with each other, innovating with each other. And there's where we come in. Conflict management, difficult conversations, we come in there as well. Sell, sell Selling, we're, we're brought in an awful lot because especially in the virtual world, people don't know how to engage each other, build relationships with each other, have comfort through this medium. So selling of ideas or actual transactions were brought in to help sales departments. So it's it's a pretty wide field in which we have the opportunity to run and play because frankly, what we bring to the table is high energy and tons of fun. Yeah, I can, I can imagine, I can imagine it is a a lot of fun and there's a lot of energy. Well, this has really been kind of a fascinating journey um, across your business. Before we switch to uh, contemplating a podcast for your business, let's go ahead and take care of your contact info. If somebody is interested in exploring your services further, what's the best way to contact you? Do you accept link LinkedIn invitations or how would you like people to reach out? Uh, thank you. Thank you for that opportunity. Yes, I'll always accept LinkedIn opportunity, uh, invitations, of course, connections with people. Also, businessimprov.com. That's the easiest way to get to us. And um, if anybody out there is uh, potentially a little anxious about what improvisation might be to them, I would encourage them to check out our online course, Improvisational Communication on Teachable, because that's something you can do from the comfort of your own home or with the, your your team inside your house with you. And not only is it uh, a fun journey of exercises that we put you through, you walk out with tools and techniques that you can use for communication, collaboration, creativity, change, agility, et cetera. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for mentioning that. Well, super. Was there anything that we didn't cover in regards to the business improv business that you feel like we needed to, or do you think we uh, we kind of covered most of what we needed to? Well, we covered an awful lot in this journey. So let's let me think. Um, 
you know, it's just, it's always just a joy and a privilege to work with people. This is a, an amazing art form. It is one of the greatest loves of my life, the greatest love that's not a person, not a human being of my life. And I've been taught by the, the people who created this art form before they passed away. So I get to speak their voices, which is also an honor. And I get to teach other people how to use this. And I get to teach people how to use this in, in a powerful, effective way and how they can help other people with this as well. So it's, you know, it's a privilege teaching it. It's a privilege running my own company. It's a privilege talking with you today and your audience. Well, that is is great. It's always fun when you meet a an individual who can combine their vocation and their avocation. That's uh, you can just hear the enthusiasm and passion in your voice. So, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. So, let's uh, talk about podcasting. Yes. So, this this podcast is called Podcasting Stories. So, we we tell two types of stories, basically people who have a podcast and share kind of lessons learned or people like yourself who don't have a podcast, but are kind of intrigued about the idea, not necessarily sold that they want to do it, or if they do want to do it, that they want to do it tomorrow, but it's something that they're open to exploring. And so we use this platform as a way to just have kind of a, uh, you know, a live unscripted kind of brainstorming session around having a podcast. So. Talk to me about, from what you do know about podcasting and our prior conversations, what about the medium seems intriguing to you? The things that interest me about this and strike my both curious side as well as artistic side is really the opportunity to uh, tell stories, connect with people in different ways as well. So it's both a collaborative medium, like the conversation that we're having back and forth. It's the opportunity to learn. And I do consider myself one of those lifelong learners that there's always something to learn. And when you get the opportunity to chat with great people, you learn their perspective. If it's something that you already know a bunch about, or you learn about what they do and just different stories and and get to go on journeys with them as well. And so it sparks the imagination. It sparks creativity. And as I said before, it's the opportunity to tell stories. And everyone can get better at telling stories. Everyone can get better at crafting an arc and heightening and and taking people on a journey with them. So for me, it, it's the possibility to reach people. It's the possibility to learn from people, collaborate with people, and flex my artistic muscles. Hmm. No, I think that is very well said. And those are some of the things I enjoy about podcasting myself. This is the, I host three different podcasts. And from the very beginning, I loved the storytelling and not so much the storytelling, but being the conduit to my guests being able to tell their story. It's, it's enjoyable medium in that way. So so those are some of the things that are intriguing to you. And what are some of the, you know, I guess the obstacles that you see in terms of, you know, timing, cost, other, you know, current initiatives that you're in the midst of. So from, or just your, you know, maybe lack of complete knowledge that maybe makes it seem a, a bit intimidating or, so what are kind of some of the the obstacles that you envision to, to having a podcast? 
I think, David, you hit a bunch of them right on the head. And I think this is part of most of our journeys when entering into the unknown, that the unknown's a bit intimidating. And as an improviser, I thrive in the unknown. I, I love the unknown. Yet once you start looking at entering into something you're not familiar with and marrying it to bandwidth, it becomes even more challenging. Because then you're like, well, who's producing this? How are you producing this? How is it going to be distributed? How are we going to get an audience base? How are you going to get uh, guests to come on as well? That turns into, especially on an individual level, a lot of work to take on. And mm -hmm. that on its own becomes pretty intimidating. And then once you think about, you know, potentially partnering with somebody or farming out some of these responsibilities, that does lighten the load quite a bit yet the financial implications that are attached as well especially sure. in uh, uh you know so much unknown just in the world today that becomes a bit of a challenge on top yeah. of everything else so fortunately for me it's not the the communication aspect or at least they, i don't know maybe the people listening are like, that, <laughs> that ding dong can't form a sentence to save his life what <laughs> that is he idiot. talking about that idiot. Yeah, he's, that idiot that improv idiot he's living in a bubble <laughs> which is probably true anyway. Uh, I feel confident enough in my idi idiocy, idiosity, that I can at least stammer my way through a conversation. It's more the the other side of it that that is yep. the big bite to try to swallow. Yep, I can certainly appreciate that, and that's why that's part of the reason that we have this podcast. I mean, in a way. It's like a it's like a rehearsal, if you will, you know, to use a theater analogy mm -hmm. or a maybe even more than that. It's almost like a casting call because through this platform, our, our slogan is we're having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. And so part of the reason we have this structure is to give people a taste of what having a podcast would would be like. So, and it's funny because we we tell people this all the time for about every three guests we have on who are thinking about having a podcast, one of them usually ends up moving forward in, you know, within a a couple months or so. And what's interesting is we I never really know on the front end like which one of those three people it's it's going to be. So our attitude is just, you know, create a fun environment for somebody to kind of experience a podcast and then uh, things will work out as they, as they will. So, uh, so yeah, so, uh, so hopefully this experience will give you some additional knowledge and, and perspective. So I want to touch on two factors that are, are obstacles for every person we talk to. And that is time that the podcast would take and the cost of it. So mm -hmm. can we, do you mind if we dive into those two things? Let's do it. So we find that a good, but that a good budget for doing a sync one podcast a month is about a thousand dollars. That's what we charge for a turnkey solution. If you do it internally, it's, you know, there's you know, internal resources involved, you know, there's time involved, but from a, if we're just talking to somebody and we say, Hey, if you're just trying to play with some numbers, assume a thousand dollars. And for our clients, it takes them 75, 75 minutes a month to do one podcast. And that is you're scheduling a guest, the interview itself, 
from the, the, the pre-call to the interview to the post-call takes uh, 45 minutes to an hour, and then it takes uh, five or 10 minutes to record the intro at the end, kind of creating the teaser for the audience for the episode that's going to be played. So those are the, the two things that we're, we're looking at. And then we find that from there, we try to give our clients kind of some of the information I've learned in terms of ways to financially justify it. We find that most people, when they hear it only takes a little over an hour a month and they really want to do a podcast, they can find that hour. And then, and then the other one is just the, you know, the economics of it, because, you know, that's $12,000 a year. You could do a lot with that money, right? A thousand dollars a month, you can hire an overseas virtual assistant full-time, you know, so would you rather have a podcast or a full-time virtual assistant? So let me just kind of pause there. Are you, you with me so far? On tracking. Absolutely. Okay. So what we say and what we usually recommend our clients do for the first year, if possible, is just focus totally on interviewing either current or past clients that you've had a successful relationship with. Mm -hmm. So the first question I would have in this brainstorming exercise is, do you have 12 clients that you could imagine who would be comfortable coming on and talking a bit about, you know, kind of the, the, the company and then, you know, a small portion of the interview talking about some of the work you've done for them. So I know some of your clients, like the farmer company you mentioned, they might be unwilling to do that, but you, ha- you may have other clients who are not as sensitive to that, who are happy to come on and, and, you know, there's something in it for the guests. They have a platform to tell their story that, you know, can be shared via this medium. And then what's kind of in it for you is you get a chance to kind of have them give an implicit testimonial in essence. So the question is, can you think of 12 clients that you might have who'd be willing to come on the show and, you know, kind of tell their story? I can think of probably 24 who would want to come on to the show and tell their story. Okay. That, that sounds great. So that's kind of the first step. And the reason we start with clients is for a couple reasons. And we use some thought exercises to kind of think through this. And here's one of the thought exercises we have. We say to, we say to people who are considering a podcast and we say, hey, hypothetically, let's just say one of your clients called you up and said, hey, Bob, you've really done some amazing stuff for us. And we w- I would like to draft a, a testimonial uh, letter or a testimonial email. And I want to send it out to my entire database telling them how wonderful you are. Uh, would you mind if I did that, Bob? And I'm guessing your answer is probably no. You probably wouldn't mind. And then we say, but then imagine if they said to you, but here's the deal, Bob, we don't really send these emails very often. It's kind of a clunky process. And so we actually have a marketing agency that like actually handles all this for us. You know, you know, we don't know which software to even use. Anyway, they do it all. But unfortunately, it costs $1,000 for them to kind of do the whole thing. So if you're willing to pay the $1,000, we'd be happy to send that testimonial out. And so the first thought exercise and I don't mean to ask this as a leading question or anything, but if you had to put a value on a client sending out such an email, like 
how much value might you put on it? I mean, would it be conceptually worth a thousand dollars? Would it be uh, a smaller number, a larger number? A client, right? Network, well, more than a thousand dollars. Okay. So that's and that's a typical answer because it's such it would be such an unusual scenario, and and especially if they had you know thousands of people in their database becomes easier. So the reason we ask the question is because we find that one of the reasons we suggest starting with clients is the the amplification effect of having a client as a guest is is really substantial. And one of them is that we, we find with our guests and with the guests of our clients who we run their podcast is that if you have a client on your podcast and the first half an hour is just all about their story, their business success, their challenges they went through, and you really just portray them as the, the you know, one of the great entrepreneurs of our time, something that's so great that five years later, they're still using that as a marketing piece themselves for like new clients. And so and you know, and then you'll talk a bit about you know some of the you know the project you worked on together and how that went. What we find is when you showcase somebody like that, they are they are proud and and yeah, proud to send that to send an email to their database announcing that they were a guest on your show. And what we find is that when they send that email out, and we actually draft that email for our clients. So we actually draft the email that you send to your guest to make it as easy as possible. And what we find is the way that resonates with their audience is just about the same as if they wrote that testimony letter. Can you see why we kind of think of it that way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you're making it turnkey. Yeah. And we're making it just easy for them to, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, to do it. And then, so, and then the other thing we find when it's a client, and I learned this myself with my first podcast, I had this guest on his name, his first name is, is Paul. He'd been a client for 10 years. I've had lunch with him. I've played golf with him. I've probably spent 50 hours with him over the last 10 years. And I thought I knew him really well. I had him as a guest on the podcast and he, I learned stuff about him I never knew about. And, and I realized from that experience that when you have somebody as a guest on your podcast, it's a really special platform because like, like if you're just at a party and you start asking somebody about their life and you kind of start, you know, helping them be a hero in their own story, most people after some period of time, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, will start to feel kind of self-conscious that the focus is all on them. And then they'll reciprocate. Well, hey, Bob, enough about me. You know, where are you from? Tell me your story. Or the other opportunity they'll have is a vendor will come in and engage with them, but in a much more tactical fashion. Tell me about the business. How big is it? How many employees do you have? You know, is this a good fit for us tactically? But it's rare that they have an opportunity to sit down and talk for 45 minutes about themselves with no social obligation to have to reciprocate and ask you about yourself. So the other thing we've discovered is that having, and then at the end of the interview, if this is a client who I really enjoy working with, I will sincerely thank them. 
say, you know, and say, Paul, I really just want to tell you how much we appreciate the chance to work with you the last decade. And I want to just tell you how great your team is. I mean, Karen is just a rock star. We love working with her. She's, she's amazing. And so really from the bottom of my heart, I just really want you to know how much we appreciate the relationship. And something special happens. You could say that conversation over lunch with a client or on a phone call, but it doesn't quite resonate in the same way as in the public forum of a podcast, because in theory, 8 billion people could be listening to that. So we find that's the second benefit to having a client on is it actually really does great things with the, with the relationship. And can you, can you appreciate how that would happen? Oh, absolutely. Sure. You're, you're turning them into a rock star. Yeah. Yeah. And, and publicly thanking them for how much you appreciate the chance uh, to work with them. <clears throat> so we find that that's, so we've had some clients that have said, that have said, Dave, just the relationship enhancement that I could tell happened, like it was worth a thousand dollars, just like, even if nobody ever listens to that podcast, and even if they never send it out to their database, <clears throat> it was, it was worth the thousand dollars just for that opportunity to be able to, to showcase them. So that's kind of the second way that you can you know, justify a podcast. The third way, now this one, based on a prior conversation, I don't think is as good of a fit for you, but tell me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. And that is a lot of our clients <clears throat> don't really have a robust email market system in place. You know, like you imagine like a law firm, a CPA firm, and they don't want to be a nuisance to their clients. And nobody ever has time to, to draft, you know, like a whole educational email, you know, educating them on some subject. So what we find is so many of our clients, they only email their database once or twice a year. And we ask them, hey, what's, what's it worth a month to you? for an email to go out to your whole database, you know, that's announcing the new episode that's short, that's, you know, technically newsworthy, uh, that you don't have to do anything for, we do everything for you. Like what's that worth? And for a lot of our clients, you know, they'll say that's worth hundreds of dollars to even a thousand dollars a month. Uh, But it sounds like for you all that you guys have that kind of covered that you all already have a pretty good, Uh, email marketing uh, process. Is that right? Yeah. Communication, you know, it's, it's gotta be the hallmark of, of what we do. So absolutely. Yeah. So, and that's, and that's uh, good that, that we've identified that because, you know, somebody who's advising you that that's one, quite frankly, one of the big three benefits of having a podcast is that monthly, regular, non-annoying email. And so if you have that piece kind of under control, then, you know, to me, it makes a podcast not as compelling for you as it might be for somebody who doesn't have that. Uh, and can you see why I, I, I oh, point yeah. that out? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it takes a lot of time and energy to be consistent with your, your database and be topical and walk the line between being persistent and a pest without crossing the line into being a pest. And so it takes a pretty fair amount of creativity and ingenuity. And if you're not, you know, rooted as sort of a creativity think tank, like, you know, we are, then that could be even more daunting. 
So you're really providing a, a very simple solution. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So these are usually kind of the three uh, things we talk about when we're looking at helping kind of a client or a potential client sort of, you know, think through, hey, does a podcast make sense? Can I financially justify it to my team? These would be some of the, the things that we would go through. So so it sounds like two of them have some benefit. The the relationship enhancement by giving a client a platform to showcase them, and then the fact that the client will likely send an email to their whole database that has some some credibility enhancement benefit to you. But does that does it seem like that because the email piece isn't as is valuable to you? Do those two pieces alone seem like it's enough to justify a podcast? Again, I'm I'm not assuming you're going to do a podcast. I'm not assuming you, you know, you're looking at doing one even this year. But just in kind of a big picture conversation, does it seem like that really resonates or does it kind of feel like, yeah, you know, it'd be kind of a nice to have thing, but hey, we have enough clients, our phone rings as it is. It's really a marketing exercise our marketing machine runs pretty well. So I don't know. What, what's your, what are your thoughts? Oh, no, there's definitely a benefit to, to what you're saying. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So, and again, my goal here is just to give my clients kind of an opportunity to experience it and just to kind of have some information to mull over later. Was there, before we get wrapped up, did you have any kind of specific questions, you know, as somebody who's, you know, released, you know, several dozen episodes over the course of a few years on podcasting, or have we kind of covered the main things you were curious about? Oh, I think you've, you've covered it in great detail. So uh, well done. Okay. Well, well, thank you. So was there anything else we need to cover before we wrap up? I've given your contact information. I guess the only other thing in my end is just my expressing my sincere gratitude. I really appreciate you taking time to be on the show. I love learning about different businesses and you have one of the most interesting business stories I think I've ever heard. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share that with me in the audience. Well, no, thank you so much. You know, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and learn from you and hope everybody in your audience enjoyed it as well. Well, that is great. Well, Bob, thanks again for your time and I hope you have a great weekend. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You have a great weekend as well. Okay. And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at www.podcasting.com stories.com. This podcast is brought to you by your podcast team. If you have ever considered having your own podcast, head over to www.yourpodcast.team to learn more about how they can help you. That's it for this episode. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.